This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this BMJ Best Practice podcast on status epilepticus. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm clinical director at BMJ. Status epilepticus is a serious medical emergency. Fortunately, it's relatively rare, but when it does occur, it can cause serious complications, including focal neurological deficits, cognitive dysfunction, and behavioral problems. So it's important that we get the diagnosis and management of this condition right. To give us more details about this problem and what we can do about it, we have on the line Dr. Rajiv Mohanraj, consultant urologist and honorary senior lecturer at Manchester Centre for Clinical Neurosciences. And importantly, Rajiv becomes highly recommended by our BMJ Best Practice expert neurologist. So Rajiv, you're welcome. Let's start off by asking, what exactly is status epilepticus? Hi, Kieran. Thank you for inviting me. So status epilepticus is, simply put, a seizure that does not stop on its own. And this was very much the definition uh, which was originally proposed in the 1960s, which describes status epilepticus as a seizure that has continued for long enough or has repeated sufficiently frequently to become a fixed or enduring epileptic condition. This was by Gaston in the 1960s. And this raises the question, at what point can we say that this seizure has become self-sustaining or unlikely to self-terminate? And over many years of observation, it became apparent that convulsive seizures or generalized tonic-clonic seizures will generally terminate within two or three minutes. And if these have gone on for typically two minutes longer than the habitual duration, then it becomes less likely to self-terminate. So this resulted in a time point being added to the definition in the late 1990s, which defined convulsive status epilepticus or generalized tonic-clonic status epilepticus as a seizure that's gone on for five minutes or longer. So that's the point at which you can recognize a seizure as status, and you should start to intervene to try and, uh, and, uh, and terminate that seizure. And further refinement occurred over the next few years, and in 2015, the International League Against Epilepsy Specialist Commission introduced a second time point into the definition. And the second time point pertains to the point at which irreversible brain damage will occur as a result of the status. So um, for a convulsive seizure, five minutes is the point at which you can, uh, uh, you can diagnose it, and that is uh, designated as T1. The second time point of T2 is about 30 minutes. So 30 minutes into a convulsive seizure, irreversible brain damage can occur, and that's the point before which you should ideally terminate the seizure with your interventions. So that is essentially what a convulsive status or generalized tonic-clonic status epilepticus uh, is. There are, of course, other forms of status epilepticus. Um, as you'll know, there are other forms of seizures. So epileptic seizures are not just convulsions. You can have non-convulsive seizures. You can have absence seizures. You can have focal seizures of various descriptions. And all of these can also become self-sustaining uh, or fail to terminate spontaneously. And these are broadly classified as non-convulsive status epilepticus. And they are rather less well-defined uh, and and uh, the risk of neuronal injury as a result of these forms of status epilepticus isn't uh, as high. 
So broadly speaking, non-convulsive status epilepticus T1, or the point actually diagnosis can be made, is somewhere between 10 and 15 minutes. And T2, the point at which neuronal injury might occur, is an hour or longer. And in the case of absent status, we suspect neuronal injury does not occur at all, no matter how long it goes on for. So the risk associated with those types of status are much less, and that uh, leads on to some different approaches in management of these conditions. Okay, thank you very much. Um, how do you make the diagnosis of, of convulsive status epilepticus? And, and for the purpose, I think we'll probably stick to convulsive status epilepticus. Absolutely. So uh, the most important thing is obviously the history. So if a patient has been brought into hospital uh, or, or, or is on the ward and starts off having a generalized tonic-clonic seizure, and that has gone on for more than five minutes, and if you manage to obtain that history from people who are there from the start, and this has been, uh, and, and, and then you can observe what is going on. In most cases, uh, uh, when the patient is first um, seen by paramedics or arrives in the emergency department, uh, there will be some motor activity going on. So it's the observation of that motor activity plus the history of how long this has been going on that makes the history, uh, that makes a diagnosis. Um, now, in most cases, um, by the time the patient reaches uh, medical attention, more than five minutes will have elapsed. So in most cases, by the time uh, a doctor or uh, a paramedic is on the scene, uh, intervention would be required. Uh, and uh, at that point, the diagnosis can usually be made. Um, and, and it is based on the observation of the motor activity. Um, but one thing to bear in mind is that if the motor activity continues for more than half an hour to an hour, it can actually become less obvious. And beyond an hour, you can have a, a situation where the motor activity has sort of burnt out and you have a comatose patient with EEG discharges but no visible um, of, uh, convulsive activity. A sort of electromechanical dissociation can occur uh, in, ex in, in very uh, uh, prolonged episodes of status. So that is something to, to, to bear in mind. Um, but in most cases, observation plus history should be sufficient for the diagnosis. Okay. And are there any tests that you should do at the at, at the bedside kind of immediately? Unfortunately, there are no tests that can help make the diagnosis in the acute situation. So people need to be aware of uh, status epilepticus and importantly, its mimics and be able to tell them apart when they are uh, making the call as to whether to intervene or not. Um, in the late stages where the motor activity has disappeared and you're left with a patient who is unconscious and you think this is burnt out status epilepticus and the patient might be in, uh, in still in electrographic status, an EEG uh, is very helpful, but that's obviously not an easy test to get in many uh, hospitals. In neuroscience centers and major district general hospitals, there is usually an EEG department and you can get an emergency EEG, but in most other centers, it's hard to get. Blood tests such as uh, serum lactate and prolactin and so on uh, do not have a good track record of being able to uh, be sufficiently sensitive and specific in order to guide management. Even though in retrospect, sometimes these, these, these bits of information can be useful. At the bedside, it's really about observation and, uh, uh, and, and, and understanding the differences between status epilepticus and other forms, particularly its mimics. Tell us about the mimics. What are the top two or three mimics? So the main one is um, functional seizures, 
or what we used to call psychogenic non-epileptic seizures or non-epileptic attack disorder, uh, previously used to be referred to as pseudo-seizures. We discourage the use of that term. Uh, these are manifestations of uh, psychological disorder, particularly dissociation. Um, so dissociative seizures, functional seizures, non-epileptic attack disorder, psychogenic non-epileptic seizures, all of these terms refer to the same thing. These involve uh, apparent loss of awareness and limb shaking, and that can be very prolonged, it can wax and wane, and it can cause uh, a great deal of diagnostic confusion. And uh, that is the most important differential diagnosis for uh, convulsive status epilepticus. Because if these patients are treated with um, intravenous benzodiazepines, which is the first-line treatment for convulsive status epilepticus, um, that, that carries a significant risk of atrogenic harm and potentially uh, fatalities that can occur. So the role of a, 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 a senior medical um, opinion, so who that happens to be, uh, it might be an emergency department doctor, it might be uh, a medical SHO in one of the wards, whoever is making the decision, their job would be to stand back and detach from the excitement and the, 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 the um, uh, sometimes the panic that goes on uh, when someone is, uh, is, is apparently seizing and to um, have an observe, uh, spend a few minutes observing what's going on uh, because the nature of shaking is very different um, in non-epileptic attacks compared to uh, generalized tonic-clonic seizures. And there are many online resources that, that people can access. The um, ILA, the International League Against Epilepsy, um, has uh, a lot of online resources, particularly epilepsydiagnosis.org, which I would encourage everybody to visit, and that there are seizure videos that people can access and familiarize themselves with the physical manifestations of all these various types of seizures. So that's really the number one thing to bear in mind. Um, the, the other types of fits, faints, and funny turns can produce transient loss of consciousness, but generally are not sufficiently prolonged to cause confusion with status epilepticus. And I guess to confuse matters, some patients can have epilepsy and have non-epileptic attacks as, uh, as well. Is that correct? Yeah. There is a, a proportion of people with epilepsy who develop non-epileptic attacks, and it, it is not all that common. Uh, my default position when I'm faced with a patient who carries both those diagnoses is that one of those two diagnoses is wrong. And as you may know, that people with non-epileptic attack disorder, in the vast majority of cases, are initially diagnosed as having epilepsy and treated for epilepsy before they come to specialist attention or have some attacks witnessed by doctors or, or in GP surgeries, et cetera, when the diagnosis of non-epileptic attack disorder is made. But often people fail to remove the original erroneous diagnosis of epilepsy, and the patient is left with both these labels. Um, so, so that's one thing to bear in mind. But then, yes, there are people who have epileptic and non-epileptic seizures, uh, and that can be quite challenging to manage. The patients themselves can't tell them apart often. Uh, patients, family members, and carers can't tell them apart. And, and you really need your uh, local neuroscience center, your local epilep uh, specialist epilepsy service to help disentangle what, what is what in these cases. They, they often need prolonged periods of inpatient video EEG monitoring to capture all the different types of attacks and characterize them and then develop a care plan uh, which is appropriate for both types of seizures. So in that situation, if a patient comes in with a, uh, a dual diagnosis of epilepsy and non-epileptic attack disorder, you have to observe each attack individually and again to go through the process of observation and diagnosis.
Okay, thank you. Uh, I guess in terms of other mimics, uh, low hypoglycemia or electrolyte disturbances are potential things to look out for. Yeah, so these would all cause convulsive seizures and they can they can be fairly prolonged. Um, so the management algorithm, if you like, of the uh, of a patient setting with a convulsive seizure um, would be uh, a case of um, checking for hypoglycemia. If you think about hypoglycemia, then you need to treat for hypoglycemia because it's a, it's a, it's a very serious emergency. Um, and and uh, hypomagnesemia uh, is, is another cause for, for, for seizures and um, pregnancy, eclampsia, all of these things can result in, 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 in seizures which can be prolonged and evolve into status epilepticus. So the initial management of patients coming into hospital with seizures would include um, testing for these things. So you will need to get a line in, get some blood soft, do some toxicology, urine pregnancy test, and uh, that will inform you as to what the underlying cause of uh, the status might be. Um, so systemic causes such as those things would be important to consider. Okay, thank you. And um, are there any other pitfalls in diagnosis or, or have we covered them all? We seem to have covered a fair few. Yeah, I think those are the main ones. So the, the fundamental idea really is that psychogenic non-epileptic seizures and non-epileptic attack disorder um, is often misdiagnosed and treated as convulsive status uh, with, the, with a big risk of iatrogenic harm. So that's the main thing to bear in mind. Okay, thank you. And, and one other point, like when I used to work in the emergency department or, or in neurology once upon a time, um, the, the staff would be really terrified, panicking almost, when a patient would come in with seizures or prolonged seizures, uh, and you could feel the atmosphere in the resuscitation room. What would you advise about that? Yeah, so this is where um, having some gray hairs and having a, 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 a being of a certain age helps because the key thing here is to calm that situation down. And my advice to my colleagues, my junior colleagues, when they ring up and say, we have this patient who's experiencing seizures and we think they're non-epileptic seizures, uh, we don't know what to do. My advice is that they should practice masterful inactivity. So they should be in control of the situation, yet do nothing apart from maybe put a SATS probe on the patient's finger or just palpate their pulse or something like that. But you have to stand everybody else down. So the house officer is drawing up the lorazepam, somebody's putting a line in, somebody's applying oxygen. So none of these things are necessary when you're dealing with a patient with non-epileptic attack disorder. An attitude of calm reassurance is what's required. And it is actually very hard to do because there is a pressure to inject some drugs, give some oxygen, call the intensive care doctors, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so that's, that's really the key thing. Uh, and that is the job of the senior medical person on the scene to stand back from all that excitement, make an objective observation of the nature of the attack, come to a conclusion, and then direct everybody along the right course of management. Okay, thank you. Which moves us neatly on to management. What is the mainstay of management? So when a patient arrives in uh, apparent status, so they are convulsing, their the arms and legs are shaking, they're unresponsive, you have to do the basics first. The fundamentals are airway breathing circulation. And once you've, uh, once you've secured the airway, once the, the, the circulation is established, et cetera, um, you should try and get a line in uh, if possible and send some blood off. And if it's possible to do urine pregnancy tests, that would be helpful as well. 
Um, so those are the initial steps, uh, if you like, um, and the treatment. And, and then, of course, you have to be sure that you're dealing with um, convulsive status, uh, and that determines treatment. So if it is non-epileptic seizures, as I said, you uh, adopt an attitude of calm reassurance, masterful in activity. Uh, but if it is convulsive status, then you have to use um, uh, intravenous benzodiazepines. That would be the first-line treatment. This was established over a... Uh, uh, three or four um, randomized controlled trials, all published in the New England Journal from the late 1990s through to 2019, um, which has established lorazepam as first-line treatment um, for convulsive status epilepticus. So in a patient who has in a, a line in and lorazepam is available, four milligrams of lorazepam IV is your treatment of choice. And that's for patients of who weigh 40 kilograms and higher. In children, the dosing is less. Uh, it's not 0.1 milligram per kilogram body weight, um, but most of our adult patients would be 40 kilograms or, or, or more, uh, and therefore they can be given four milligrams. Uh, and that's the correct dose, and that should be given intravenously. Um, a study in 2012 comparing lorazepam to non-IV midazolam, so that's administered either as a buckle via uh, 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 the buccal route or via the nasal route, found that uh, that was non-inferior. So non-IV midazolam is non-inferior to IV lorazepam. And that's because it can be administered more quickly than IV lorazepam. So if you, have, if you have a seizing patient and you have to spend a minute or two trying to get a line in, that um, th those extra minutes would actually lead to a slightly less good response because one of the things about benzodiazepines in status epilepticus is that the sooner the drug is administered, the more effective it is. And the longer status goes on for, the less likely benzodiazepines are to work. So if midazolam can be administered more quickly, then that is often a more effective treatment than trying to get a line in and then administer lorazepam. So our first line treatment would be in a patient with an IV line and if lorazepam is available, it would be four milligrams of lorazepam IV. If a patient does not have an IV line, then it would be non-IV midazolam. So we prefer buccal route, so administer into the cheek and it is absorbed from the oral mucosa. Uh, and some places have the ability to administer uh, uh, via anatomizer and nasal midazolam, those routes, or intramuscular. So if the patient does not have any contraindications for um, IM injections, then IM midazolam 10 milligrams can be administered. Okay, thank you. And if uh, the benzodiazepine doesn't work, what should you do? So after the first dose, so five minutes into the seizure, you administer your first dose of benzodiazepine, either IV lorazepam 4 milligrams or IM or buccal midazolam 10 milligrams, and then you wait another five minutes. And if the seizure hasn't terminated, then a second dose may be administered five minutes into the seizure. And at this point, you are beginning to think that this might be benzodiazepine resistant status. And you need to be thinking about your second line treatment. So benzodiazepine is not working. You have to think about what I might be giving next. So um, five minutes after the second dose of uh, benzodiazepines, you move on to your second line treatment. And you have three options there. You have uh, traditionally phenytoin, and now um, some centers have phosphenytoin available. Uh, another option is sodium valproid, and the third one is levetiracetam. So these are the three drugs available for use as third-line treatment. And 
there was a study called the ESET, which is Established Status Epilepticus Treatment Trial, which is published in the New England Journal in 2019, which compared these three uh, treatments, and it used uh, phosphenitoin, not phenytoin, and phosphenitoin is a prodrug of phenytoin, which is water-soluble, and therefore can be injected more rapidly, can be even given as an IM injection, as opposed to phenytoin, which is not water-soluble. Uh, the IV formulation is dissolved in propylene glycol, which is a very toxic thing, and if it is extravasated, you have all the problems associated with it, et cetera. But phosphenitoin is a kinder version of uh, phenytoin. And so phosphenitoin, labeled as phenytoin equivalents, 20 milligrams per kilogram body weight, um, sodium valproate, 40 milligrams per kilogram body weight, and levetiracetam, 60 milligrams per kilogram body weight, uh, were compared in this established status epileptic treatment trial and were found to be, found to be similarly effective uh, and associated with the same risk of adverse effects. Uh, and therefore, all three options are recommended for use in second-line treatment of status epilepticus. Okay, thank you. And, and I, I'm guessing at this stage, you need to be thinking about calling for senior help. Absolutely. So when you're administering a second-line treatment, um, you have to be aware of the fact that a significant proportion will then require um, either third-line treatment, which is general anesthesia, or uh, will need to go to ICE for airway management because of all the benzodiazepines they have received. So when your second-line treatment is being administered, that's the time to get on the phone to your ICU colleagues and say, we might need some help with this patient. So um, the options, so with, for, for, in most hospitals where phenytoin is the only uh, version available, uh, it has to be administered with uh, ECG monitoring and frequent blood pressure checks because hypotension, bradycardia can be a big problem with that drug, particularly in the elderly. Uh, so sodium valproate should be avoided in women of childbearing age who may be pregnant, um, and that would leave levetiracetam as the overall best option. The problem with levetiracetam traditionally has been that we have underdosed with it. It's only since ESET was published in 2019 that we've started using a proper dose of it. So in most cases, uh, the dose of levetiracetam would be 4,500 milligrams given as a, an IV loading, followed by 1,500 milligrams twice daily. Uh, and uh, that sort of dose uh, is comparable to the other two options, and it has got some pharmacokinetic advantages. Okay, thank you. And what about pitfalls in, 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 in management, would you say? So the biggest pitfall is not using an adequate dose of benzodiazepine. So benzodiazepine underdosing is the biggest problem. And people look at a patient who's seizing and say, well, they are a bit small, so I'll just use one milligram or two milligram instead of the four milligram dose. And that then does not adequately controls the, the, control the seizure, and the seizure then continues for another 10 or 20 minutes, by which stage further dose of benzodiazepine is just not going to work because the receptors become uh, internalized and they become less available. Um, so benzodiazepine underdosing is the main uh, pitfall in management. So if the patient is in convulsive status, they need the full dose. If they're not in convulsive status, they don't need it at all. There is no halfway house. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. So I used to do neurology once upon a time, and we used to get asked terrifyingly tough questions. So I'm going to ask you a few tough ones now. Sorry, Rajiv. Um, comorbidities is something we're really interested in. 
in BMJ Best Practice, and we've added a, a new addition to BMJ Best Practice, the BMJ Best Practice Comorbidities Manager, to help manage patients with acute conditions plus comorbidities. See for somebody with epilepsy, but also depression, and on antidepressants. What should you think about? Okay, so there is this idea that antidepressants are risky in patients with epilepsy. And that may have been the case in the 1970s when you had drugs like meansurin and so on, uh, more widely used. But modern SSRIs in clinically relevant dosing do not increase risk of seizures in patients with epilepsy. Depression is such a common comorbidity of epilepsy that the vast majority of my patients require some antidepressant treatment. In fact, that is probably the best thing um, someone can do for their overall quality of life. So treatment of depression should be encouraged in patients with epilepsy. And uh, the risk of pre precipitating seizures or status is, is very small. Having said that, there are certain medications that can provoke seizures, particularly opioids, uh, such as tramadol, for instance. Um, so those medications will need to be um, ideally avoided in people with a history of seizures or epilepsy. Okay, thank you. Um, last question is a question about questions, really. What have we missed? What other questions do you commonly get asked about status? Well, with convulsive status epilepticus, the recognition of the condition is pretty straightforward. It's somebody who is seizing. The, ol the only thing you need to know is how to tell that apart from a non-epileptic attack. And there are video resources, and if people are sufficiently familiar with the videos, then they should be able to do that. And we have good evidence base for at least the first two steps of management, which is benzodiazepines first line, phenytoin levetiracetam, and valproate as second line. So that's actually a pretty well-established treatment pathway. We have um, uh, local treatment policies. We have order sets that can be populated automatically, et cetera. So that's fairly straightforward. Um, the problems arise when we go into the realms of non-convulsive status. There is a lot of confusion around the term. It's an EEG diagnosis, and there are gray areas, and sometimes EEG can be a little inconclusive. And there is no strong evidence base for management. And particularly, there are risks associated with aggressive treatment of non-convulsive status, particularly in the elderly. So I would encourage everybody to, to recognize the fact that there are more than um, the, 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 there's more than one type of status epilepticus, and non-convulsive status should not be treated in the same way as you would treat convulsive status. That's really the main thing. Um, in terms of other issues, really, when we talk about comorbidities, it's really that status can be the presenting feature of a range of acute brain insults, okay? So if you have um, encephalitis, you have stroke, you have an intracerebral bleed, you have traumatic brain injury, all of these can potentially present with status epilepticus associated with it. And if people are in status when they present with these acute brain injuries, then the prognosis of those underlying conditions is made worse by the fact that they are in status. And the risk of long-term epilepsy as a result of this brain injury is also higher in patients who present with status as opposed to isolated seizures. And status, if it goes on for a very long period of time, can result in irreversible neuronal injury, and people are um, neurologically impaired after 
several days of status potentially. So we have people who sometimes go into status without any previous history of uh, brain injuries or epilepsy. We call it new onset refractory status. And only about a third of people are able to return to their previous level of functioning. So two thirds are left very impaired. Um, so, so those are the kind of problems you can acquire as a result of having episodes of status. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Rajiv. That, that's really helpful and, and really clear. And thanks to everybody for listening. We hope that this has been helpful and we hope you'll be, you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice have a, and have a look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again. <laughs>